No valid argument over which diet is best can be supported without a comprehensive understanding of the nutritional habits that humans have used to evolve into the species we are today. If you want a glimpse into the real science of humans' nutritional evolution, then this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show is for you. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you will hear the real-world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. They're the modern Stone Age family. From the town of Bedrock, they're a place right out of history. Meet modern-day Fred Flintstone, Dr. Bill Schindler, a trained archaeologist and primitive technologist who travels the world documenting traditional foodways and works to draw inspiration from the deep archaeological record, rich ethnographic record, and modern culinary world to create food solutions that are relevant, meaningful, and accessible. Bill is a strong advocate of traditional foodways and is constantly seeking new ways to incorporate lessons learned from his research into the diets of modern humans. In this interview, Dr. Bill Schindler takes us on a journey through the dietary and physical evolution of humankind and the foods and food technology that helped us become the intelligent and resourceful humans that we are today. We discuss the ways in which food and food processing have impacted our physical form and function, our digestion, absorption, and assimilation of nutrients, and the cultural and lifestyle differences between ancestral cultures and modern America's dietary habits. Dr. Bill Schindler is the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, and the co-star of both the National Geographic series, The Great Human Race, and Curiosity Streams, The Modern Stone Age Family. Dr. Bill's outlook on food has revolutionized the way in which he and his family eat, and he attributes much of the health his wife and three children enjoy to the nutrient-dense, hunted, gathered, and fermented foods that comprise a significant portion of their diets. He makes a difference in lives of people around the world by sharing his powerful approach through his speaking, coaching, workshops, and retreats. So make sure you check out www.drbillschindler.com for more information. Guys, I'm so excited to be able to share this enlightening interview with you. So if this is your first time listening or you've been hanging out with me over the last couple years, well, first off, thank you so much. And secondly, you guys are in for an absolute treat today. If you enjoyed listening to the show, then do me a huge favor. Please leave a positive rating and review in iTunes and make sure you share this with those that you think can benefit so that I can get more eyes and ears on our content, continue to bring on the most knowledgeable guests, and help more people in the process. This show has really been years of hard work and effort, and, and every positive star and rating just reinforces my drive to continue this journey with you. 
And if you want to talk about working with me personally, I'd love to chat. Just schedule your free nutrition strategy call over at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. That's it. Here's Dr. Bill and enjoy the show. Dr. Bill Schindler, welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. How are you? Good. Yourself? I'm doing really well, man. I'm doing really well. So serious question to get you started. Okay. Were you a rugby player or a wrestler? <laughs> That's the first question, huh? <laughs> I was a wrestler. I was a wrestler. All right. Okay. I figured it had to be one of the two with those with those awesome ears, with that cauliflower ear going on. I figured. Yeah. If there's been a ton of operations on them already. They used to look worse than that. Really? Yeah. So you wrestled in college? I did. I wrestled at, for Ohio State and uh, at and the College of New Jersey, both. Awesome. And I suppose it makes sense to give our, our listeners a little bit more background beyond just the wrestling into kind of how did you get into archaeology and anthropology? Sure. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a real long story, but I'll do my best to keep it as short as possible. And then we can, you know, plug and, and hit different things. So my background, I grew up in, in New Jersey, uh, a couple miles from the beach in Monmouth County, New Jersey. I was right on the train line to New York City, and my parents uh, did everything that they could to connect me with the world around me. My mother kept me in the kitchen as much as possible, and my father had me outside as much as possible, right? So um, where I lived, getting to the outdoors other than the beach was a difficult thing to do. So he had me Mm -hmm. hunting and fishing and trapping and camping and moving on a regular basis. And as a result of that, I felt very connected to my environment, but there was always something missing, a little piece. And, 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 and that really came, and, and this really is, is um, I guess, part of the, the story for how I got into archaeology and anthropology. The, the hunting, I, I felt connected to my father. I felt connected to my environment, but, and, and some level connected to my food, but there was a piece missing. You know, the idea of, of going and, and purchasing a gun and buying a tree stand and, and sitting in right. this and hunting a deer was great, but I wanted to be a little bit more connected. And I found the answer to that through archaeology, that, that path that led me to, to learning how to make and use stone tools and how to make bows and how to, how to tan hides and, and make strings for the bow. All of that led me to archaeology and, and that, you know, that path really defined my entire outlook on food and everything I've done since then. Of all the hunting you did when you were growing up, did you guys eat everything that you were hunting? You know, that's a really good question. Yes, yes, we did. However, uh, some of it was, and, and it really has framed a lot of my work now, some of it was very compartmentalized, right? Sure. So my father had me out there, number one, I think, because he wanted to share time with me, um, and two, because he wanted to share with me something he loved and was passionate about, and, and, and that I, are, are gifts that will last me my entire life, and I'm passing on to my children. Um, and he also had me out there because we were getting food, certainly. But, you know, I'm growing up in the 70s and the 80s, and the idea of going out and hunting, hunting was looked at by the larger community, I think, as, as a sport. Let me pick that apart just to touch that, that idea of sport. I always got the sense, I'd go to the, the, the sporting goods store to purchase our hunting licenses, to buy our shotgun shells at the beginning of every season, to buy our camouflage clothes. And that idea of sport really carried over into the atmosphere in these places, right? So we're in there and it almost felt like a locker room. You know, people are almost smacking each other on the butts, talking about how big the deer was they shot last year. And there was always something that rubbed me a little bit wrong about that. That part I never enjoyed. Mm -hmm. It was something that I was connected to. Um, And we were out there hunting. And of course, you know, we'd kill a deer and we would cook, you know, we'd always did our own butchering, but we'd always butcher the meat and do this. But what we did reflected the way that 
we uh, other parts of, of our diets and lives in the 70s and 80s uh, were. We ate the parts of the animal that we could buy from right. the grocery store, right? Uh, so there really wasn't a lot of organ meat in our house growing up, partly because my grandmother had ruined my father on liver when he was young anyhow. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, we did, yeah. there, was, there wasn't much of that. And there was also, we did a lot of trapping. We did a lot of trapping. And, and in fact, I made a lot of money in high school trapping muskrats and, and raccoons and skinning them and selling their skins. And we, uh, we didn't eat them. And yeah. it never even crossed my mind that this could possibly be food. And this was, now I live on the Eastern shore of Maryland and, and eating muskrat is a, is, is a, you know, a heritage sport here. I mean, it's something that happens. All oh, time. really? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, the, the, the local butcher shop sells muskrat. Some restaurants serve muskrat. There's a lot of old timers here. That's interesting. Muskrat. Uh, I, I love, I love muskrat, but it never, it, it never, entered my mind that this could be food and it never entered my mind the other parts of the animal yeah yeah uh, what weren't food it seems to me that during especially during those times when there was such an emphasis on food science and we were sort of entering this this low fat craze and mm-hmm. sort of just the idea that we had all of the nutrition that we need and, and almost engineered nutrition and being yeah. told what we should be eating and shouldn't be eating um and we had we had obviously extensively removed ourselves from our uh, traditions and and from our ancestry, which obviously we'll get into, but to the degree that the hunting itself, and I'm not a hunter and have never been, but it seems to me that it was the the nature of it was more sport oriented as whereas now it seems like we're starting to come back into at least it's becoming more popularized to actually be able to feed your family with the animals that you're killing yourselves. People are finding themselves getting more in touch with, with nature through those means. Absolutely. And all the other benefits from it. And you're right in the seventies. Um, you know, if you, and I say this all the time, if, if you were a good parent and listened to what the FDA and the USDA and the doctors and the nutritionists said, number one, you weren't breastfeeding your kids, right? Modern right. science is going to save the world. Engineered margarine was going to, you know, replacing butter, get all the animal fats out. You can only eat one egg yolk a week. At one point, I think it was one a month even. Which is <laughs> right. And, and it, you know, this is the mindset that I grew up in. In fact, that yeah. was the time period when pork was getting engineered to look whiter the meat itself so that it could compete with the chicken breast, which had now taken over the market as the healthy lean alternative to things. Um, you know, if you well, we all it, know. Yeah. we all know how much good that did for yeah, us. Absolutely. Uh, everything, all of the, the food science that we've been told and the food pyramid and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I really want to educate our listeners here and have you kind of take us into your research into just, um, you know, everything that you've studied throughout the years and kind of take us back and maybe give us this kind of Cliff's Notes version of, of, of basically how humans have evolved, how their dietary habits have evolved over time to the point where we are today. And I know that's grandiose, but again, maybe just a, a, an idea of how we started feeding ourselves to, you know, when we started using technology and fire to the point where then our brains really started to grow because of the nutrients we were taking in and so on and so forth. Absolutely. So I'll do my best with the Cliff Notes version of this because we're talking about millions of years worth of time. And we'll jump in 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 between and talk through some stuff. So absolutely. So here's the Here's the, the major uh, focus of the work that I'm doing and where it 
is a little bit different than the stuff they might have already heard because there's a lot of incredible minds in this community that are doing wonderful things, um, you know, and people that are, are, are pushing forth, you know, carnivore um, ideas and keto ideas and fasting mm. ideas. All of those things are brilliant. Um, but the one, one of the things that I think a lot of our approaches to diet today are missing is that most of the approaches to diet today focus on the thing, the food. We should yeah. eat this. We shouldn't eat this. And while there's some benefit to that, we're missing a huge piece. And, and that's the part, that, the gap that I'm trying to fill here. And, and to, to talk about that and to talk about our evolutionary past and the major parts of it, I'm going to say two things here that really need to be the foundation for the rest of the conversation. Uh, and I wholeheartedly believe in both of these. One is humans are one of the weakest species on the planet. Um, and number two, we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts on the planet. And both of those things are directly related to food. So if you think about it, if we're that incredibly weak, um, you know, we can't run that fast, we can't fly, we can't swim that fast, we can't dig into the ground and harvest. Right. We, can't, we have an incredibly difficult time getting resources without the help of technology. And number two, more importantly, even when we do have a resource and it's sitting in front of us, our digestive tract and everything that we have physically that allows us to break down that food and turn it into the right uh, state for our body to absorb it. And then to absorb it is incredibly inefficient compared to other animals. So I say that because all of the major evolutionary steps our ancestors have taken up until us have required better and increased nutrition. And mm -hmm. what's insane is that as our bodies are growing and as our grains, the most expensive organ, nutritionally expensive organ in our body are, is exponentially growing, everything about the way that we digest and deal with food internally is getting smaller and going away. It's the exact opposite of what should be happening. Our yeah. teeth, in fact, are getting smaller. So this is, these are the major evolutionary steps, right? So prior, we, we first, the, the Cliff Notes version is, we begin about five to seven million years ago, our ancestors first stand up. And when they do this, there's a little bit of an increase in body size, a little bit of an increase in brain size, nothing major. And we think uh, the major, uh, if there isn't, well, what they were eating at this point were a very limited amount of fruit, a very limited amount of vegetables, a limited amount of insects. There's some suggestion they might have included some small animals, but that's- basically, it. It basically foraging, just, just foragers. Just, just foragers. And the, the majority of their high quality nutrition is coming in a form of insects. Uh, okay. In fact, incredibly important to understand this, especially for female or ancestor, female ancestors, because for females, and even true, true today, the three most nutritionally ex needy times in their life are when they're right after they're born, right. when they're pregnant, and when they're lactating. And the, most in, and the most nutritionally needy time period is actually when they're lactating. And if, if they can't pull those three things off well, then we become extinct. Right. Yeah. So um, the, the, the way that we picture it now, the only way that they've made it through those times is that they've been they, they were ingesting decent amounts of uh, large amounts of insects, you know, mm -hmm. especially when they were lactating. Uh, but they were small. They didn't have a huge nutritional need. In fact, females were a lot smaller than males, which is uh, directly related to diet, because the idea is that. They were kept small through evolutionary pressures because if they started with a smaller nutritional need during those really important times of pregnancy and lactation, when their need jumps, they still are within the threshold of what nature could provide, right? Yeah, yeah that um, So sense. they're collective, collective foragers um, and just getting what they can from the environment. The one thing that, that may have been introduced at this time period, some people hypothesize, is that they started getting underground, what we call underground storage organs, roots, corms, tubers, potato-like things into our diets, mm -hmm. which would have provided 
uh, at least a boost in calories, if nothing else. Uh, one of the huge problems is that, and we need to fully understand this, and I know there's a lot of a discussion right now happening in, in kind of the ancestral diet community about uh, toxins in plants, lectins, right. oxalates, all this. Well, exactly. that's true, but the wild ancestors to the plants that we see in the grocery store that have these have even more of those in them. So when we think about our, our foraging ancestors, they had to deal with highly toxic plants and roots are one of the ones that have a lot. So they either needed to avoid them or do something to make them less toxic, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. So that persisted for millions of years, not much changes. And then three and a half million years ago, we see our first stone tool and it was a simple flake. Um, it happened, the first earliest example we have is in Kenya, just west of Lake Turkana, uh, dates to, well, actually dates to 3.3 million years ago, and it is a very simple flake, so you can imagine an ultra-pithecine ancestor standing full-grown, full about three and a half feet tall, uh, brains about the size of my fist. Someone, um, one of them picked up two rocks, one of them had the right qualities to fracture predictably and banged them against one another and struck off the first flake. And yep. a lot of people look at this as a, oh, well, that's fine. They're banging rocks together. But to me, this was monumental, transformative. This set the stage for everything that we did from that point forward to become human, especially related to diet. As soon as that flake was struck and it took less than a second to make it, we, for the first time, could overcome all of our physical limitations. And we weren't restricted to getting or processing food with these weak nails or these weak teeth. We right. could some dice and chop and butcher. And it isn't a coincidence that almost the same exact time period, we see the evidence for the first butchering sites. Um, so we see, again, in Africa, but this site's in Ethiopia, um, we see... Uh, bones, fossilized bones with butchering marks on them from several different species of animals. So this shows that meat at least has been in our ancestral diet for at least three and a half million years. Meat and potentially marrow because they weren't hunting, they were scavenging from other animal kills. The other animals went in and took all the good stuff. So about two, a million and a half years later, we have the first evidence for, um, for hunting. And so, are, are their brains growing? Like what's happening yeah. to their bony structures throughout this period of time? Obviously they're evolving and, and kind of we're changing species in terms of we weren't actually homo sapiens not, then. Not yet. No, but what you ask about the bones is very important uh, for a couple reasons. And, I, and I'll lay it out uh, here in just a second. But first off, the bones are really, the bones and stone tools are really all we have to go for, go with archaeologically to make these interpretations. So yeah, right. understanding it is very important. Um, but it, it can also tell us a lot. So uh, for example, uh, one of the things we see in the bones over time is yes, the bodies are getting a little bit bigger. The um, brains are getting a little bit bigger for everything I've mentioned so far. In a minute, they're going to jump exponentially, but for, for so far. And um, the arm length is getting a little bit shorter compared to leg length, which means mm -hmm. not, we know they've been this entire five to seven million years, they've been completely uh, upright walking, but they've still, still were spending some time up in the trees, probably more at night to protect themselves because they didn't have fire yet and needed to protect themselves at night. But so over time, we see the arm length uh, shortening to a more modern you know, used to be the arms and legs are the same length, but now they're getting shorter. Um, a couple other things are changing. And the other thing that's changing is that the rib cage used to flare out. Like it would start at the shoulders and get bigger as you went towards the waist. And what that shows us is it was making room for a huge gut. Yeah, big organs. Like, big organs, big stomachs, big intestines, yeah. which relate to how much food you can actually eat at any given time, how long it sits there, how well it gets digested. And over time, this rib cage 
shrinks to now we can have this sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger V-shaped broad shoulders, narrow waist. I don't care how many steroids you would have given somebody in the past. They would have never had that shape. It would have been an opposite of a V. And, and do you think that the, the amount of organs, like the sheer size that was necessary for those organs to be as it w- was by virtue of obviously the, the highly more plant-based diet that they were consuming at those times, just taking more time to break those foods down and absorb the nutrients? It had to do with both the foods they were eating. So you say plants, yes, because plants are obviously more difficult for our bodies to break down thoroughly to get all the nutrition from. But in my mind, even more importantly, and this is, you know, we'll get to it more in a second, but is the fact that they weren't processing the food before it went into their bodies. So right, what, or they weren't cooking it. And- right or cutting it or slicing it or fermenting it or whatever we were doing. That's the power of all this. So, um, so we see a little, bit of jo- a little bit of body size change, a little bit of brain size change, a little bit until now, until 2 million years ago and we start hunting, we have the biggest jump in body and brain size. And this is really important for everybody to understand. Two things happen at around 2 million years ago that um, uh, allow for this incredible jump in brain and body size, almost to the proportions that modern day homo sapiens have, right? This is homo erectus now, but um, one is that we're hunting. Mm -hmm. Two is that we're cooking. And the hunting piece is really important to flesh out for a second. The difference between how our ancestors prior to this time period were eating animals and now that they're hunting is that before they were scavenging, they were going to a kill after a lion or something else took it down and took all the good parts. They took the organs and the blood and the fat and went off and took a nap and yeah. our ancestors ran in to cut off some meat. If, if some of the focus of this entire story is about nutrient density, then meat is much more nutrient dense than plants, but it's sure. the least nutrient dense part of an animal, right? So the organs, the blood, the brains, the, the, the fat, the, the, those things are the most nutrient dense part which is now yeah. the part that our ancestors, since they were hunting, had first access to. That and cooking combined provided the opportunity to support incredible brain and body size changes. And the other thing that's cool about that is, and I'm glad we started the conversation with talking about the pregnant lactating females, the sexual dimorphism, the difference between the males and the females is now starting to equalize to the point where now modern day homo sapiens, females on the average are smaller than males, but not significantly right not as much as they were in the past which shows that we're getting an increase you know over, over this time period so um, now all of a sudden they're able to to start getting significantly more calories and nutrition where as to previously significantly and, more and more most importantly and the biggest takeaway is that we are developing technologies and behaviors mm-hmm. that make foods three things safe nutrient dense and bioavailable so we're doing all this before it goes into our bodies. This is the power. This is what humans do differently than every other animal on the planet. We process our food extensively before we even eat it. This allows for our guts to shrink and still support these huge bodies and these huge brains. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and so from the time, so from 2 million years ago, when all of a sudden we, are, we're, we have the technology to process, to cook our food, to consume more nutrients, to consume more calories, um, essentially from then on, it was just a matter of, so we're consuming then what we're consuming primarily meats and organs and brains. And so the entire animal, uh, we're killing animals ourselves. And then we're also starting, and then we're also consuming whatever we're still foraging to the point where event, eventually we start with 
kind of agriculture. Right. So at, at, let me uh, let me back up for a second, and just kind of do that timeline to get us to where we are now, just to remind everybody. Five to seven million years ago, we stand up. At that moment, we're collectively foraging for a limited amount of fruits and vegetables, eating some insects, maybe a little bit of animals we could catch with our hands, but we don't think that's a significant part of the diet. Eventually, we introduce, we think, underground storage organs, roots, corms, and tubers, these carbohydrate-rich foods, and but not a lot of it, but it's there potentially. The, um, at two, three and a half million years ago, we start making our first stone tools and butchering. At two million years ago, we start hunting and using fire. And then we just, for the next, almost the entirety of two million years, just do a really amazing job of creating technologies and behaviors to get the most nutrient-rich resources from our environment and to transform them into the three things that I said, safe, bioavailable, and uh, nutrient-dense. So things like fermentation and curing and aging and slicing and dicing and cooking in different ways, all those things are all that. And then at about, depending on where you are in the world, between 10 to 15,000 years ago, we start farming. First, we start domesticating plants, then we start domesticating animals, and then we find ourselves in the situation that we are now. Interesting. and a big, a big other, uh, I think, takeaway from all this is that there is definitely a correlation between the safety, nutrient density, and bioavailability, bioavailability of nutrients in our diets and our increased body and brain size over millions of years. And I'm convinced that overall the focus has been, and I mean, we're talking about incredible amounts of diversity over millions of years all over the world. But in general, I'm convinced that the focus was always how do we feed ourselves get the most amount from our food with the least amount of work. And yeah, that's, absolutely. But that's what it's been up until the uh, agricultural revolution. And then we've started to backpedal and do something that's incredibly weird. Right now, the focus is, and it's true, especially in the modern Western world, how do we get, it's crazy, how do we get the least amount from our food with the most amount of work? It's the exact opposite. <laughs> we, we, we truly want to eat all day long and not get fat. We pay money to go to a gym. Right sit on a treadmill to exist. So we can eat more. And we think, we think that that is the healthy approach to food. That's the way we regain our figures we've had, you know, in the past, but it's the exact opposite. And I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise. That's not the point, but the, the mindset, the paradigm is the exact opposite of our ancestors. Our ancestors were focused on getting the most amount of nutrients with the least amount of work. And today we want to eat all day long and not get fat. I mean, that's the, that's the focus of most people's diets today. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it's an interesting way to, 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 to really think about it. Well, there's just such a disconnect now. And, and that's why I was, you know, I'm so interested in talking with you and sharing your knowledge about this is because I just think there's so much value in understanding what our ancestors and what people have been doing for millions of years to right. tell us, you know, to give us an idea of, of how the body is supposed to be nourished. Um, and technology is phenomenal. Obviously, humans have been, technology is the reason why we are what we are today. I mean, there's always been some form of food processing, but obviously very different than, than what it is today. So obviously, as, as humans are evolving and, and, and humans uh, are starting to kind of spread out throughout the world, we know that there's different cultures throughout the world that have have subsisted on different diets. I'll let you kind of elaborate on what we're seeing as, as humans started to um, expand throughout the world. 
what have we seen throughout these cultures as far as the differences in some of these um, food processing techniques? And then within that, are there any cultures throughout the world that have subsisted exclusively on a plant-based diet? Ah, that's great questions. Um, okay, so first of all, one, and you make a very good point, people around the world through time, and again, we're talking millions of years, and I, I, let me say one other date that I forgot to mention earlier. This entire time period, we're talking about our ancestors, other species, up until 300,000 years ago. That's the most okay. up-to-date number for modern-day Homo sapiens, right? So, and that's an important thing to think about. For over a quarter of a million years, the Homo sapiens with the same dimensions, brain size, gut, all of it, have been walking the earth, dealing with diets and food and, and all this in, in, in a way that's much healthier than us today. So there's a lot we can take from this. We're not just talking about taking information from a three-foot-tall, walnut-sized brain. We're talking about us, and getting information even from our own species. So, but during that time, we did really well in environments all over the world, completely different resources, completely different, um, uh, not only resources themselves, but uh, ratios of resources. In some places, yeah, exactly. easier to get animals and plants. In some places, those animals had a lot more fat than in other places, right. right? So that's one of the reasons why I don't like to solely focus on just the food itself, mm -hmm. because our ancestors all had different resources that they used, but what they did in common was the thing I mentioned earlier, create technologies to make all these foods safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable. And I'll give you a few examples. And in some cases, you know, we have cultures, ancestors that are subsisting almost entirely on dairy. Mm -hmm. We have other groups like in the Americas where they, after their infants and when they're, when they're weaned from their mother, they don't touch dairy their entire lives with very, uh, some would argue equal levels of, of health, right? But completely different foods. You know, the Maasai and the Sombrero do, the males in the group still today will have nothing for six months of the year but milk and blood. That's literally all they'll eat, almost no vegetables. And you have groups in the Arctic that are eating, you know, high amounts of fat and meat with almost no vegetables, right? Right. Um, so I, there is no evidence anywhere prehistorically or even in our, our deep historic past of any group making the decision to not eat meat and, and, and have a solely plant-based diet. Those sorts of decisions are much more recent in historic times, right, to, to, to have that happen and require um, even more extensive, to do it to its best ability, extensive food processing and, and the ability to get resources from a lot of different places to fill in gaps in our diets. I do not believe at all that you can wholly support the human body to its greatest potential on a solely plant-based diet. Yeah. However, I also do believe that done the right way, using lessons from our ancestral and uh, ancestral past and anthropological present from around the world, um, we can very safely and in a very healthy way include plants in our diets for not only nutritional reasons, but also for all the other, for, for pleasure reasons sure, and for protection, exactly. all this, all this, but we have to understand it's not just a simple saying, okay, I can eat, I can eat plants now. And I go to the salad bar and just house these things because you know what? Plants are incredibly dangerous for us if we don't deal with them the right way. 
Hey brother, are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman, father, and husband? I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you wanna find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. So, I, I mean, I think that's really fascinating. I think that it's important for people to understand that. And I don't have a necessarily, I mean, personally, I, I, I'm not interested in, in going plant-based. I've interviewed, um, you know, vegans on the show. And, and I think you absolutely can make a case, especially this day and age for being able to do it in a way where you can get all of the nutrition that you need relative, you know, compare as compared to 10,000 years ago. And with the processing that we have now, it might be more advantageous if you want to go down that road to be able to do it. You, you may be able to do it more effectively. So that is what it is. Um, but I, I just think it's a very interesting point that there's been no cultures that have selectively chosen to avoid animals, you know, consuming animals in any way, shape or form throughout our entire human history. And not only that, it's been something that's been absolutely paramount in our physical and mental evolution um, in and of itself. So within that and within the idea that, um, you know, our ancestry, like we all come from different parts of the world. Our ancestors were spread out all over the world. So within that is basically how, much of of our own personal ancestry and like what part of the world we're from do you think impacts our own personal nutritional needs does that make sense my question and, you know, it does it makes a lot of sense i think the where you're from doesn't necessarily impact your nutritional needs as much as it impacts your need to understand how to deal with these foods to make them ready for your particular body. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. And, and, and I don't know if that made sense, but let me flesh that out for just okay. a second. Let's start with this premise for a minute. If everybody listening can, can open their minds for a second and consider this, what I'm about to say to be true, and I wholeheartedly believe it is, almost everything we put into our body has no business going into our bodies. Our body cannot deal with it. Our bodies, our digestive tracts are only designed to eat the foods that we were eating pre-technology. So the only foods that we could actually put into our mouths and eat without the aid of anything else and successfully get the best nutrition we can are a very limited amount of plants and some insects. That's it. Because if you think about it, from that point forward, we use technology at some level in every single thing. Even if we're talking about an animal, we use technology right. to take that animal down and open it up. Um, uh, so I say that, and if you consider all the foods that you eat, whether it be, and especially the foods that modern populations or sections of our modern populations are having a lot of issues with, wheat, dairy, um, you know, pl other sorts of plants. Think about the way that we, so, for, so start from that premise that 
none of these foods belong into our, in, in our bodies. However, and this is the hard part to wrap our brains around, we built our bodies on many of these foods. Like we would not be here, you and I would not be here with the body size that we have and the brain size that we have if we didn't start including animals in our diet three and a half million years ago. Right. And really, so, but, so, so the point of this is that we use technologies and behaviors to access foods that our bodies have no business um, eating and then doing things to those food to get them ready for our bodies before we take the first bite. That's right. what we do as humans. And we do that for all the food. So, so uh, somebody saying we shouldn't eat animals because, you know, we can't rip up, we don't have huge canines is, is a silly argument. That's like saying, take that grain of wheat. Exactly. Just, you know, right, with, without a plow and without anything else and eat it. But let, let's break that down a little further into individual foods and, and how uh, the, the past can tell us a lot about how we should deal with it. Uh, dairy is an incredible example. A lot of people ask me all the time, should we, as hu you know, humans are the only species of animal that as adults drink milk from other animals. Should we be drinking it? Well, I say, well, let's, let's, let's talk about it for a minute. How do you decide what you should be consuming? And to me, I look at the most nutrient rich foods possible. And then I find ways to make those safe <laughs> and available to my bodies, to my body. And Things like eggs or milk, I mean, think about what they do. They support new life. I mean, they're there with the nutrition to support new life. And milk especially is there to support mammals. You know, all mammals drink milk as infants. But, what's, but how do we make that safe and nutritious for us? Well, if we look at our own species, our own young, let's look what they do with milk when they drink it, real milk from their mother. So every mammal, when they drink milk from their mother, the milk goes into their bodies and into their stomachs and immediately gets hit by a bunch of different enzymes. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the enzymes is lactase, which breaks down the lactose, but more importantly, it gets hit with chymosin, which is an enzyme that coagulates the milk, and it coagulates it for the purpose of slowing it down in the digestive tract. If it stayed a liquid, it would pass through our bodies way too quickly, not fully break down, and we would never reap all the benef nutritional benefit that it has. But if we slow it down by making it into a somewhat of a solid, it'll sit there longer, it'll ferment, it'll... Um, a lot of chemical and physical changes will happen. It will mechanically and chemically break down. Then it will slowly, more slowly pass into our, into our uh, small intestines. And the nutrients that are broken down better will now have more time to be absorbed by our bodies and will make full use of that milk. We, as soon as any mammal starts eating any solid foods at all, it slows down and then eventually ceases the production of chymosin. So none of us produce chymosin any longer in our, in our bodies as adult humans. And we also have an issue with lactose. Most humans <laughs> suppress the ability to produce lactose to break down lact the, the sugar lactase, um, sugar lactose in milk. So we now sit here as, as human adults and question whether we should be drinking milk. And because we have an issue with it sometimes when we drink it. But again, let's go back to should we eat meat because we don't have huge canines? Should we right. eat grains because we don't have built-in plows in our bodies, right? And, and well, what can we do to those foods, the dairy, to mimic what our, our young is doing. And this is exactly what's been going on for probably 10,000 years since we first started domesticating animals that produce milk for us. We do exactly what happened in our bodies as children, as infants outside of our bodies. Chymosin is also known as rennet. And when you make cheese, you coagulate the cheese with literally the stomach enzyme from usually from calves. Then we allow it to ferment and then we consume it. And the cool thing about the fermentation of dairy is that the fermentation of dairy requires lactobacillus bacteria to eat the lactose and produce lactic acid. But so when you ferment dairy, 
you're doing a lot of in, uh, very uh, important, a lot of chemical and physical changes are happening that are very important to that. It's improving the flavor, improving the texture, but it's also making it more digestible and safe mm-hmm. for us. So that's why when you are lactose intolerant and you can tolerate certain cheeses and yogurts and kefir, it's because it's going into your body with less lactose already. Yeah, the, the lactose has been broken down. So do you guys do you guys drink raw milk or you just use the raw milk as the kind of the, the starting product for the, the processing? So my family has been exclusively on raw milk our entire lives. Um, actually, up until this year, just because it has become too problematic. I, I, it's illegal in both states that I've lived in and it's just, I have a low temperature pasteurized milk that I have access to now, but um, it was almost always fermented. And it is in the past. If you look at traditional groups around the world, almost every traditional culture who had dairy in it, not the Samburu and the Maasai in Africa, but almost every other one will ferment their dairy before they consume it. It's a completely different food than milk from a grocery store today. Yeah. Well, we've been drinking, my family, and we've been drinking raw milk. Well, my, my daughter's now, she's almost 10. So whenever she weaned, she was probably two. Um, all my kids breastfed until they were at least two. So, and then we started introducing raw milk. And yeah, yeah I mean, it's just a phenomenal food product. And it, God, there's so much stigma around it too. I mean, it's like, uh, it's, it's funny because I, I believe it's legal here in Arizona, but it's almost like a drug deal. We have to buy it off the street, literally. Like we have, a, we have our, you know, the dairy then delivers it to someone in the neighborhood. And then we kind of pull up at, you know, on Tuesday nights and we do, you know, hand over the money. I've been a part of those buying groups as well. And, yeah. And grab the gallons of milk and it's, uh, it's hush hush. And you don't want to get too many people involved because you don't really know if someone's kind of really for it or against it and going to kind of bring in the authorities. It's, it's kind of nuts, but I, I can absolutely appreciate that. So I, I guess within the, within going just, uh, within the idea that, we've all evolved from different areas of the world. Some people have been closer to the equator and therefore have potentially had more grains in their diet for a longer period of time. Whereas more maybe Northern cultures have had um, more dairy and less grains. And do you think that there's some aspect of our digestion that it favors one of these foods over the others, or it's more just about ultimately the processing in and of itself? There is, there are some suggestions. Um, there's some people doing some really cool work in, in, in uh, evolutionary genetics. And, and one of the things that they're finding is, and I don't know, and I'm going to speak very simply about it because I don't fully understand it. But what they're suggesting is our ancestors, those of us, excuse me, who have ancestors in areas of the world where grains have been in our diets for the past 10, 15,000 years, natural selection has selected for our ability up until childbearing years to be able to tolerate those grains better than we would have in the past. Um, whereas other groups that didn't have access to that don't have that ability or at least as much. But the cool thing that they're finding is that the way natural selection works, it selects very heavily for the most important times in our life on an evolutionary uh, scale. And that is childbearing years. Like evolution doesn't care what happens to us after we've given birth. Right. Right. And that's just a cultural piece of taking care of the kids. But as far as the biological piece, it doesn't care. So this really quick in, in terms of, of evolution, 10,000 years is nothing. Right. But this right. kind of quick flash has been enough to allow the most important time in our life up until childbearing years um, to digest the grains better. But then, you know, 
you know, when you get into your 20s and 30s and even 40s, you know, you start finding that you're having more and more issues with that because that selective pressure has, has, has yeah. wasn't as strong for then, which is interesting. That's but very I, interesting. But I do think that the other thing we need to consider is, again, this role of technology in all this and, and what that means for the foods that we're talking about. Because you and I have, even in this conversation, have been using the term dairy or grains. And right. there's a huge difference between raw fermented dairy and, you know, ultra-pasteurized skim milk, as you know and the way our body deals with it. There's a difference between Wonder Bread and a long fermented sourdough bread. And the yeah. bacterial fermentation that happens in, in the production of sourdough bread makes those grains a lot safer and a lot more digestible. And that's the, that's the idea of the, these anti-nutrients that are inherent in any grains or plants that is basically mother nature's mechanism to keep animals from eating them. Right. So the thing that I, I usually say is, you know, animals can hurt you or kill you when they're alive and plants can hurt you or kill you when they're dead, right? So, yeah. you know, the hard part, an animal that can defend itself, the hard part's killing it. But once you've killed it, you have a, you know, pile of incredible, easy to digest nutrition sitting in front of you. And unless you do something wrong or let it go bad, you're not going to, in, in almost all cases, you're only going to nourish yourself and not make yourself sick or harm yourself. But with plants, it's the exact opposite. And they need to protect themselves because they can't move. And they do it through, certainly through physical defense mechanisms like thorns and things. But more importantly, they do it through chemical defense mechanisms. That's right. And we need to under, and here, here's the dilemma. This was very, I'm convinced it was very apparent to our ancestors because the wild versions of these plants, you know, had, the reason we call weeds, weeds, and these weeds are like the wild ancestors of these plants is because they'll survive no matter what we do to them. And they survive mm -hmm. because they're producing these chemicals that allow them to survive and their, their um, you know, um, uh, fungicides and herbicides and, 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 um, and, and, and the like that are happening naturally in these plants. There was so much of them that our ancestors knew they had to do things to these plants to make them safe to eat, right? Whether it, and it, it depends on the plant. In some cases, they're fermenting, it depends on the toxin. In some cases, they're engaging in geophagy, which is the intentional consumption of earth or clay. At the same time, they're ingesting these plants. Um, I was just working with a group in Bolivia that still do this with highly toxic potatoes. Uh, we, uh, and what they do is these potatoes are so toxic that they, every bite, they dip the potato in this clay clay and water and eat it in between every bite because the clays will bind with the toxins and allow the mm. pass safety to our body. Now that sounds strange, but here's, think about this. We are one of the only plant eating species on earth that don't still consume earth or dirt on a regular basis. Yeah. Some of them, some people do. So they knew how to do this, but here's the dilemma. We have taken these plants and domesticated them and literally genetically dumbed them down. We've selected for things we wanted, larger fruits, sweeter, you know, less seeds, but, right. and, and we've also reduced the toxin level in these plants and we've resulted in several different things. One is- But also to reduce the nutritional value. Yes, because these, these, these toxins carry with them tons of nutrition. I know it's hard to wrap our brains around this, but tons of nutrition, tons of medicinal qualities, and even believe it or not, tons of, flavor and texture qualities that are really unique. And now we're just left with all these bland things that look a little different in the grocery store. We're now, because we've done this, we've also not only reduced the nutrition, nutritional medicinal qualities, but also are putting completely defenseless plants out in fields. And we need to artificially hit it with herbicides right. and fungicides and, you know, the like, insecticides. And here's the other part. 
we've reduced the, th- we've done the worst thing possible. We've reduced the toxin to the level that they can't fend for themselves and that the toxin level is completely out of our conscious, but they still have toxins in them. So we right. now go to the produce section and think, okay, I'm going to be healthy or the salad bar and I can just have that. If I'm going to be healthy, I'm going to eat all the vegetables that are here or the fruits. Exactly. And we're not thinking about the toxin level in them and they're there. And it's, it is not to say we shouldn't eat them. I don't, um, you know, the, the plant, if you've read Plant Paradox, the sort of the, the takeaway message is all these plants have terrible toxins, keep them out of your diet. And I don't think that's the right approach. I think the right approach is all these plants have terrible toxins. Our ancestors figured out ways to get around these toxins while still reaping the, the nutritional, medicinal, and, you know, qualitative value of these plants. And they did it in this way and we can do the same thing. That's something I've been struggling with a lot lately and just trying to wrap my head around you know, because we have so much sort of, um, there's so many thoughts around nutrition as to what is the right way. And I don't think that there's any one right way. I mean, we can learn a lot from what our ancestors did. So within that is saying, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense for, to me, in my understanding, to take all of these raw plants and just mix them up into a salad and eat them thinking that our digestive system is going to be able to absorb those nutrients, especially when we're starting to see through research that there is indeed anti-nutrients that affect our one our ability to digest them can be harmful to some people and so on and so forth so so what are the ways that our ancestors have absorbed you know how have we leveraged those nutrients through processing right so and and there's a lot of ways to do it it depends on the food it depends on the toxin it depends on the application it depends on your dietary you know your own um, personal dietary past. Like if you're somebody who has eaten so much spinach and Swiss chard and kale that you have a huge oxalate load in your body stored, yeah. then you're going to have to do something different than somebody who's been on more of an animal-based diet and what you can tolerate. So there's a lot of, it depends, but here's some basics. Um, fermentation seems to be an incredibly powerful tool in detoxification, not for all toxins, but for some. And I'll give you guys an example of, of that in just a second. Um, Cooking, depending on the yeah. toxin, can help reduce it. Boiling and getting rid of the water um, is is dependent on some some of the toxins is is very especially with oxalates is is very helpful as well. One of the things I think we very much need to do, all of us, um, is to not take anything for granted. No matter what nutritional advice it is or where it came from, none of it we should take. None of it should be put on a pedestal and untouched and just say, okay, no, no matter what, this is a good food. You know, spinach is an amazing food, uh, period. superfood. It's a superfood, super right? Question everything. And yeah. sometimes we'll come back in with the same answers, but question everything. So let me give you a quick, if, if we have time, a quick fermentation. Yeah, you're good. So uh, this is something I was just working on recently. My kids love French fries. I mean, love French fries, love potato chips. We spent a year in Ireland. I was on sabbatical two years ago, and we ate, the family and I, we ate a lot of potatoes. Um, turns out potatoes are highly toxic. Well, modern potatoes are toxic. The wild ancestors are highly toxic. There's still a ton of potatoes under domestication that are still highly toxic. Um, there's currently we have 4,000 different types of potatoes. uh, The seed bank in, 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 um, in Lima, Peru has 4,000 different types of potatoes under domestication. Most groups in South America, in, in the Andes, um, Different, different communities can have upwards of 600 different varieties under domestication at any one time. Many of those are highly toxic still. So um, 
when I started to learn more about the toxins that are in potatoes still today, things like glycoalkaloids and the, and the oxalates, I was wondering if I could take any lessons from people who still eat the ancestral version of these um, and how they detoxify them. So I went down and I, and I, and I lived with an, an ancient Aymara, a traditional Aymara family in Bolivia, in the Altiplano region up at 14,000 feet in Bolivia. And then um, I live with a, a Quechua family in the Andes mountain of Peru, two different uh, altitudes, different potatoes, different ways of dealing with toxins because of the environmental um, hmm. opportunities. So in Bolivia, what they do is they uh, do two different things. One is they eat it with the clay, which is called pasa. And another is they make something called chuno blanco, which is a combination of a long period of, of, um, of, of, of leaching and fermenting in a river and then freeze drying the potatoes on the ground. But when I went to, and neither of those are very accessible to modern day kitchens. Right. Even though they're powerful, but uh, in Peru, they were making something called tokash, which is a, they would dig about a 15 foot deep pit in the ground, fill it with potatoes, then fill the pit with water. And I mean, it's like 600 kilograms of potatoes, tons of potatoes. And they would um, ferment them for a minimum of six months. The the stuff we had that we pulled out of the ground was in there for two years. And this is how that particular group detoxifies the potatoes and gets rid of the glycoalkaloids. And it turns out there's some suggestions that fermentation can help alleviate some of the oxalates, not necessarily all of them, but some of the oxalates in there. So I came back and I'm thinking, okay, how do I apply this to say our modern kitchen? Because that, and that's the focus of, of the work that I'm doing um, is to document what traditional and ancestral groups are doing and then make that stuff, make that information and these lessons useful in our modern kitchens today. So this is what I came up with. We're, I, I make, we regularly now at both my house and also at the food lab that I direct at the college, we make lacto fries and lacto crisps or lacto chips. We ferment the potato. We cut the potatoes in either chips or French fry sizes, ferment them. And then after they fermented, we then take them and uh, deep fry them in high quality animal fat. And let me tell you, this is just a small example of the power of an ancestral approach to taking a junk food and turning it into what I consider a health food. The problems with French fries and potato chips are these. They have toxins such as glycoalkaloids, toxins such as oxalates. They are full of starch. And when you take starch and throw it into such hot temperatures for cooking, it produces acrylamides, which are incredibly dangerous cancer-causing compounds. In fact, if you look at a um, a bag of potato chips in California, it talks about that on the back. It's a warning label. And if we're sticking them in in, in nutter seed oils, well, we we all know the issues with nutter seed oils, especially high temperatures. But if you ferment the potatoes and cook them in um, high-quality animal fat, we've alleviated a lot of the toxins because the bacteria and the fermentation are eating the starches. It's going into the hot fat already with less starch. So there's a lot less of the acrylamide production Mm -hmm. and it's getting cooked in high quality animal fat. So to me, we're taking a detoxified root vegetable and serving it with high quality animal fat, health food. That sounds delicious. That sounds so good. And you, uh, you wrote a great blog post on that. I, I told you before we, we jumped on, I was rolling on the floor laughing. So you guys need to, I'll, I'll provide a link in the show notes to the, the blog post on the homemade healthy potato chips. Um, thank you. Thank because you. it was, it was excellent. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So with all the time that you've spent, and I want to, I want to just shift slightly away from the food itself and talk a little bit more about the culture briefly and, and kind of, 
the, because I think that the culture around food, the community aspect around food is, is of significant importance um, and something that we've also kind of lost our way in, um, in this day and age. And so in all your time traveling throughout the world, experiencing different communities and cultures, what have your observations been, if you can speak to this, around not only how people interact within their families, within their communities, how, what role kind of food plays, but also just maybe in general kind of their lifestyle as compared to um, in modern America, what we experience on a daily basis, what the average American experience is from a, from a stress standpoint, from a food standpoint. Uh, wow, that's great. Um, okay, so the first you know, the first word that comes to mind is connected. Everybody, you know, no matter where we've been and, and I've had the, the opportunity to be in all over the world in many of those cases with my family living and working with a lot of these cultures that are, that are approaching food using ancestral approaches. Um, the one thing I can say is the, the word that first comes to mind is connected. The second thing is that everybody's connected to their food in some way. Mm-hmm. Nothing's hidden from them right? Most of our food, we're so disconnected um, that so many parts are hidden and we don't even know where to start to start asking yeah. the right questions. Uh, the other thing that is really interesting is that everybody seems to be involved at some level with the acquisition or the production of food. And we, again, we the, the, the part that's taken away from us, we think of the fact that it's taken away from us as convenience, like, oh, we don't have to worry ourselves anymore about that. And the funny thing is that the, the people that I've, I've spent a lot of time with don't view what they're doing with the food as a chore. They view it as, uh, um, you know, even, even a responsibility isn't the right word. It's more than that. It's a, it's a yeah. pleasure. It's a, it's a gift. It's a, oh my God, I get to have yeah. this privilege to have, thank you, privilege is the word I was looking for. I get to have this food, access to this food, and I get to use my own hands to use it to nourish my family. And I know yeah. that sounds a little bit kumbaya, hug a tree sort of thing, no, but I, it's, it's a reality. It is amazing. Um, and again, nothing is, is hidden. There's so many, there's, I, I don't want to draw too many generalizations because I don't want to obscure the incredible and rich diversity around the world with approaches to food. Um, but these things are commonplace no matter, no matter where I've been. Um, the and the other thing that's really interesting is i don't think many people in the modern western world and this is a this is going to be a huge statement uh, many people might disagree with me but i don't think there's many people in the modern western world that have eaten an incredibly safe nutrient dense and bioavailable meal in their entire life something about it has always been missing so one of the issues that all of us that you have that I have that anybody that's trying to do the work that we're doing has is the people that we're trying to spread these messages to in many cases may not have that foundation to know how they should feel after they eat a meal, Mm -hmm. how they should feel the next day after they eat a meal, everything from should their feet be hurting and is that normal to what does it feel like when I go to the bathroom? And you know, these people who are eating these incredible foods look happy and they know what their bodies feel like when they nourish their bodies properly. And yeah. that's, I think, a really powerful, powerful thing. I have an immense appreciation for that explanation. For me, um, I love cooking. And 
I feel like one of the best things that I can do as a provider, as a husband, as a father, it's, it feels like an absolute privilege to be able to prepare food for my family. So I can, I can absolutely resonate with, with how that, you know, how communities embrace that, how cultures have always embraced this and how we should be embracing this because I, I literally cannot think of anything more important mm-hmm. than how we're feeding our family and, and, and just knowing that I'm trying to provide. And if, look, I mean, <laughs> I, I've just as busy and crazy of a life as anyone else. Um, so it's far, far from perfect, but, and I'm sure you would agree then yours probably significantly better than me. But the point is that um, the process itself for me is um, just very rewarding and very kind of, um, helps me manage stress it is part of my lifestyle and and i think that just establishing that connection for people uh would be something that can be and is very valuable so i I appreciate you sharing that with that is maybe we can finish off with just talking about a few recommendations that you have for helping people get moving in the right direction, regardless of where they're coming from. I think, you know, we all know where the average American is coming from Mm -hmm. in terms of being connected with our food, the nutrient, um, nutritional value of the foods we're eating. And so what are a few relatively simple, I mean, the name of the show is the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. So what are a few steps that we can take to start to move in that direction? Awesome. So the first recommendation that I have is whatever your approach is going to be, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll outline a couple approaches in a minute, but whatever the approach you decide to take is, do it to the foods that you eat all the time. Like the foods that you eat literally every day or several times a week. What I used to do when I started down this path of, of, of really learning the most of, that I could about my food, I would take and, and, and pride myself on the fact that, you know, once a month, I would spend a week making this incredibly amazing meal entirely from scratch. And we'd all sit down and we'd invite my parents and my wife's parents and everybody sit down and we'd eat and we'd feel real good about ourselves. But I really didn't do anything. Like I didn't improve anybody's health by changing one meal a month. What I'm focusing on now and what I think people need to focus on in their own homes, in their own lives, in their own families are the foods, and it may sound boring compared to that one grandiose meal a month, but the food you eat every, every single day or your kids eat every day. So one great example is the bread that your kids take to school. If you yep. think your kids should be eating sandwiches, and my kids love sandwiches, and I fought that battle forever, but I, <laughs> I, but, but I realized that, you know what, there's several ways to approach this, and one is, you know what? Instead of saying no sandwiches, what if I make all the pieces of the sandwiches myself starting with the bread? We haven't bought bread in our house. We bought probably two loaves of bread in the past eight or nine years. And my family eats quite a bit of bread. All the bread that we eat in this house is homemade from scratch, and it's all low, slow, long-fermented sourdough bread. And, and when you uh, – we uh, we'll have a link to my website later, but uh, there's right. a blog on there about sandwich bread that I make for my right. kids, and, it's, and they love it. So sandwich bread, it, it's not sexy but it'll make a huge difference. Fermenting your kids' carrots for their lunches is a huge yeah. difference, right? Um, so that, that's the first thing. The second thing I would suggest is connect with your food. And there's several ways to do this and several different kind of layers to this. One thing I say, and I know, you, I know this is nutrition made simple, and this is actually simpler than we think, but bear with me, is at some level, 
we need to remember, remind ourselves what it's like to be a hunter-gatherer. We talk about it all the time, but you know what? Go out and find three plants that are in your yard that you can eat. I mean, I know it sounds silly, but do it. Forage. Figure out that the plants that you're walking on when you go into the grocery store are more nutritious than anything you can buy in that grocery store. <laughs> even if you're never picking those plants, even if you're not a huge forager, the way you interpret the world around you, your lawn, the lot across the street, and the, you know, the grocery yeah. store is completely different. Also, I would say, and, and, and along those veins, you know what? If you're going to eat meat, butcher something. Butcher it at least once and let your kids either be a part of it or see it. I'm convinced that we need to put a face back on our meat. We need to remember that something died to nourish us. Yeah. It, it a form of respect. It increases sustainability. It increases our, our own health, mental and physical health. And by remembering that something died, we then re-engage with the system and then, and then hopefully help impact how we treat our animals that we're raising for food. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's a huge one. And, and then the other thing I would suggest, and this may sound um, like a huge step, and I would suggest this happening over time, but it has been one of the ways I've been able to transform not only my own and my family's food and diet, but also my, my take on all of this is take the foods that you eat all the time. I don't care what they are, or how complicated they are, and learn to make it at least once 100% from scratch. The only way that you are going to see through the labeling and the marketing that are the billions of dollars that are spent on that to try to force you to, to, to select what you're selecting for at the grocery store or at a restaurant is to understand how that food is made. Learn how to make ketchup, learn how to make mayonnaise, learn how to make bread, learn how to make hot dogs. And even if you screw it up, if you've done it at least once, you can pull that veil away at the grocery store, see through all that marketing. And if you're never going to make it again, at least you're putting your money in the right place to support the people that are doing it the best that they can do it. And you're bringing home the most nutritious food for your family. Yeah, man, that makes a lot of sense. And um, you've got a ton of information uh, about all of this and, and some of the seemingly simple steps that people can take on your website. Um, share some of that information with us. Sure. So my website is uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, www.drbillschindler.com. So uh, that's a great place to go for a bunch of, of information and resources. Uh, when this airs, I will have just finished uh, launching, uh, finished a summit that I've launched that has 32 incredible visionaries in the world of uh, ancestral health uh, world uh, that will have, a, there'll be information on how to access that on that website as well. Um, tips and tricks and coaching and, and techniques and all that. Well, there's information on there as well. There's a curiosity stream, which is a streaming network similar to Netflix that was started by the, the, the guy who started discovery just uh, did a, a, a pilot show on me and my family called the modern stone age family. It's a short piece, nice. but you can see some of this work in practice. Some of the people we spent time with and how to apply that to our modern kitchens. So that's again, the modern stone age family and curiosity stream. And if anybody's interested in seeing some of, uh, you know, literally our ancestral past coming alive, um, check out, it, it's a couple years old now, but National Geographic's The Great Human Race. Uh, that is a show that I co-starred on, uh, 10 episodes. We started at two and a half million years ago in Tanzania and ended at 4,000 years ago in Oregon. And we were literally recreating and living the major uh, time periods in our evolutionary past using the same tools and technologies as they used. That's awesome, man. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Um, so for those of you listening, I'm going to have all of those links 
that Dr. Bill just talked about in the show notes below. Bill, thanks so Can much, man. Can I add man. One, one more thing real quick? Yeah, one, please. One last thing, I apologize. So no, um, one, one, other, one other place that people might have a lot of interest is uh, I, I founded and now direct the Eastern Shore Food Lab mm. at Washington College. And uh, we'll have a link to that as well. But if you go to the Washington College website, it's the Eastern Shore Food Lab. And there, uh, myself, my team, and my students are doing all the things that we talked about here in a way that uh, is accessible, research, teaching, and food production in a way that's accessible to not only our students, but also, also to the community. So you can check that out for workshops and classes and things as well. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're doing this. I'm assuming you're planning on, but I would love to be able to purchase and tune in to different demonstrations um, and workshops on how to, how to ferment the, the commonly consumed vegetables to make them more nutrient uh, dense and, and bioavailable, um, how to, you know, deal with meat and so on and how to make bread and so on and so forth. Absolutely. So go, go to Dr. Bill Schindler for all that information. We're uh, every week we're putting more and more content on there and it's a great place, great place to go for that information. Well, there you go, guys. Head on over to the website below. Dr. Bill, thank you again, man. I really appreciate it. It's so informative. Um, so much knowledge, so much wisdom. Thank you for everything that you're doing in our field. And uh, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Likewise. And thanks for having me on. Take care, brother. Thank you. Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.